Hello and welcome back to Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, soaking up some much-needed spring sun here in the City of London. And talking of rays of sunshine, could it be that the economy is turning a corner? Our research suggests it might. Also in this episode, what tit-for-tat spats in the China-US trade war mean for markets, and we take the temperature of the sickly healthcare sector. Defensive or defective stocks? Listen on to find out more. Well, with me in the studio to help decipher the thinking behind this month's asset allocation are Anna Stupnitska, Head of Global Macroeconomics and Investment Strategy, Peter Kahn, a Portfolio Manager with a focus on global high-yield credit, and James Bateman, Chief Investment Officer for Multi-Asset. Welcome to you all. As always, I've got a revelatory question to get us started. Your revelations, I hasten to add. Um, it's 300 years since the publication of Robinson Crusoe. I'd like to know what one item would you take with you if you were marooned on a desert island? Anna, let's start with you. I decided to go for a sun lotion with a very high protection, assuming I will end up uh, somewhere on a very sunny island. Let's hope it is a sunny <laughs> desert island, absolutely. Uh, Peter, what about you? Well, I'm going to go more tech and I'll say a solar powered water filtration system. Ah. I don't know how long I'll be there, no. but I know I need water to stay alive. <laughs> Maybe to start um, uh, making some gin, perhaps, as well, well in time. Might um, be a good idea. And James. So, Richard, I had two answers, neither of which are particularly practical. The flippant one was a very large container of tartar sauce, because clearly the only thing to eat on a desert island is fish. And then the less flippant but to stave off boredom was a piano, because if I was stuck on a desert island for many, many years, I might, by the end of it, have mastered playing well. And if not, it makes good firewood. It would indeed. And we'd like to hear you next time, perhaps playing as you are at the moment. But, well, um, that, that would certainly reduce the listenership. Something to look forward to. Anna, what we're really here to talk about is the house view. Um, can you tell us what the allocation is now as agreed by the, the team around the table? We remain neutral on equities, on both in the short term and the medium term. Um, and this is really um, a reflection of, of the same thing that we have been talking about for a few months now. Um, and that is, we, we believe there is a disconnect between uh, economic fundamentals um, and the markets. So the V-shaped recovery that we have seen in equity markets uh, since the start of the year um, has, has gone ahead of fundamentals. So we still think that uh, being more cautious on equities um, risk makes sense. A bit concerned there. What about the other asset classes? Uh, we are now underweight um, government bonds. Uh, again, both time, uh, time horizons, um, short term and medium term. And still overweight credit in the near term. So this is three to six months, but neutral over uh, a 12 to 18 month horizon. Okay, so overall, it's a shift away from, from risk. Some shift away, but obviously adding uh, the duration underweight, underweight, meaning that we're not concerned about recession. And that is something that is perhaps reflected to some extent um, in uh, the government bond markets. Okay, well, Peter, with your interest um, in all of this, tell us what what your view is on on duration there. And how has this developed since the Fed changed its tone? Yeah, it's really a question of risk reward. Uh, In the course of the first quarter of this year, we've seen government bond markets around the world uh, overshoot uh, expectations of changes in policy over the course of the next six to 12 months. uh, And real rates 
states in particular now have become uh, much more fairly valued uh, in the U.S., whereas six months or so ago, you could invest in the treasury market and pick up a real yield of nearly 100 basis points. That's now been slashed in, in more than half. And looking at our own forecasts of intermediate term inflation uh, evolution uh, in the U.S., we think that uh, the amount of compensation that you're getting in government bonds at, at the moment is simply not enough for the risks that you're taking, uh, not to mention increasing, ever-increasing supply, it seems, uh, in the U.S., and how are you reacting with your own uh, portfolios? Well, uh, as Anna noted, we're still looking at a, a situation whereby we're not expecting uh, the onset of, of recession in the immediate near term. So we would expect in that environment uh, excess return from spread product, and, and that's how we're positioned. And really, that underweight in government bonds uh, represents uh, an opportunity to capture that excess return for us within fixed income portfolios. Okay, James Bateman, um, how does that match your thinking in the multi asset? team not dissimilar i mean i think what's what's interesting to us is we spent the first half of the year majority of the first half of the year puzzling about what would derail equity market momentum and a mixture of fed behavior and, and more recently tariff seems to be effectively doing that and as anna says that's bringing it back to towards fundamentals but at the same time it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense to us to to be hedging our sort of positions in terms of recession risk because the likelihood of recession has actually receded um, rather than increased. So uh, are you waiting for something big to happen before you change um, your, your views, you know, in a think, sort of yeah, holding pattern? It, 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 the answer is yes, but I suppose with the caveat that, that clearly this is a, an environment ripe for shorter term positioning. So, so we are clearly playing short term market behaviours. And I'm not quite sure we're in a sort of sell the rumor by the fact scenario but but we're certainly approaching that where the risk of sort of tit for tat trade wars etc throws up very short-term volatility that you can take advantage of because the market will either underreact beforehand or overreact after an event um and well, in fact just we just before we, we came in uh, we heard that uh, china had decided it was going to uh, levy some tariffs on about 60 billion dollars worth yep. of, of u.s goods this is all par for the course now is it are we are we are we sort of ready for that sort of news it would be i mean it'd be odd if china didn't retaliate the interesting thing of course is they've delayed implementation until the beginning of June, so it's not effective immediately. I presume that's partly trying to give the the US a bit of leeway to come to a compromise. I doubt that will happen in time. But in this sort of game game of um, economic brinkmanship, one, there are no winners from an economic perspective. It's clearly going to hurt um, in terms of price hikes coming through. I think the key question to us is actually watching US behaviour in terms of do we see the cost increases, which are now quite substantial, passing through to end consumers? And if we do, do we see a sort of political fallout that means that Trump can't pursue this policy for that long? That's what the Chinese will be watching as well. Essentially, the question of can tr- does Trump have to fold at some point or will he keep the sort of bluff going? So it's the uh, it's waiting for the diplomatic game to start playing out in the economic data, exactly. perhaps. And as it happens at Fidelity, of course, we've got several proprietary tools to help us um, sort out that sort of thing. One of them is the Fidelity leading indicator, the FLY. It aggregates a range of data sets to form a picture of the state of the global economy and where it's heading. Well, earlier I caught up with uh, markets research analyst Ian Samson for a reading of this month's FLY after it returned a much more optimistic, or do I mean much less pessimistic, reading than it has for a while. Well, Ian, welcome to you. I'm here to talk about the Fidelity leading indicator, the FLY. Now, that's moved into a positive reading for the first time since February 2017. Is it time to crack open the champagne? 
Well, you say positive, Richard. It is positive acceleration for the first time since since way back then, but it still points to growth uh, below trend um, in what we call the, the top left quadrant. So yes, a bit of acceleration, but still relatively subdued and certainly below trend growth levels. So the question really is, how does the fly progress from here? So we're gonna probably get a bottom in growth sometime in Q3, given that the, the fly tends to have about a three month lag, but that's not really enough to get excited about. So looking at the, the underlying indicators. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Where is the, the sudden positivity coming from? Because we've been in the doldrums down in the growth negative and worsening. I mean, who wants to wake up to that um, uh, every morning? So it's now finally turned a corner. Where is that improvement coming from? So looking at the, the individual sectors, the improvements reasonably broad based. So business surveys grinding that bit higher, industrial orders actually starting to to um, reflect that too. Pretty consumer and labor indicators have uh, perked up and most notably global trade, which had had a horrible end uh, to, to last year, um, has, has reached quite a decisive bottom. But I think what's perhaps most interesting is looking at some of the individual indicators that are really turned. These are the ones that, that really looked quite catastrophic going into the start of this year. Um, and they've bounced um, from, from really negative levels um, and to the extent that this might just be a, a normalization after you know an almost flukely um, weak patch that to me suggests that there might not be that much more improvement in the next couple of months. But it's not a dead cat bounce. It's not that um, we're seeing a blip and it's going, to uh, it's going to fall back to where it was. I would say it's a bit more than a dead cat bounce. Things aren't as bad as you might have thought uh, at the start of the year. Um, but at the same time, it might not be, um, it might be a maimed cat bounce, one that sort of stumbles on. <laughs> a uh, cat on three legs. Yes. Okay, so you talked about the three month lag. What should we expect then for the rest of this year based on what you're seeing in the in the fly the three-month lag suggests given that we're only just getting into positive acceleration now is that we see a something of a bottom in activity uh, early in the third quarter of this year um, and then thinking a bit beyond that as i say it might be a couple of months of stumbling around as we try and make that that decisive uh, floor beyond that i think towards the end of the year, some of the, the policy measures that we have seen coming in, the Fed, the US Federal Reserve turning more dovish, um, some emerging market banks starting to- China? Uh, yes, China certainly um, doing a very large fiscal stimulus and credit stimulus in Q1. That will take time to feed through and it seems like at the, the end of the year is when that might all coalesce and uh, the recovery starts to gain a bit more traction. So champagne on ice for our three-legged cat. That's exactly it. Thank you very much, Ian. Right, well, Anna, a very um, odd summary, perhaps, of, um, of the fly there. But on the surface, it does seem to be a significant moment. Would you agree with, um, with Ian's reading? Well, this is certainly the first time in many months that we get this reading. Um, so it is significant, but I think it remains to be seen where it goes from here. It can snap back uh, into the deteriorating quadrant. We do know that uh, Q1 data was distorted in the US, in China, and to be honest, globally by a number of factors. Um, and the inventory accumulation cycle was one of them. And so some of the distortion is now washing out in a sense that can buy 
applies the data to the upside and to the downside. I think there are tentative signs of stabilization, uh, but it's too early to call to call that the green shoots, definite too, green too shoots. Too soon to say whether we've too avoided a recession say. in this yeah, cycle. Yeah, exactly. And I think Ian is right. We, we will see uh, some stabilization or hovering around these levels. Uh, or we will likely see that over the next few months. And then the second half of the of this year is going to be a bit clearer in terms of direction. And my base case is that um, we will avoid uh, for the slowdown and, and recession, but the expansion ahead is likely to be relatively subdued. Okay. And, and Peter, do you take sucker from, from this, from uh, the fly improving? Well, uh, to a degree, but as Anna mentions again, the, the jury is out as to whether or not we're just in transition from a growth phase into a proper credit and default cycle or whether that's been forestalled and we really will see a you know last and perhaps final phase of, of the expansion that we're in. At the moment, we, we certainly do take a little bit of additional uh, constructive signal from the fly and that it probably means that the default cycle, together with the amount of ample liquidity provision that's been provided by the central banks, uh, is not going to you know, descend upon us uh, in the next quarter or so. But visibility beyond that into the end of the second half of, uh, of this year and into the beginning of, of 2020 remains very limited. As positive as I would expect a fixed income chap to, to, to be, maybe, but uh, the glasses always have half empty. empty. Indeed, yeah. yours is. Yeah. Um, and uh, and James, what about uh, what about you? I don't think I have a, a desperately differing opinion. I think you know that we've had false positives in the reading on the fly before, where we see a, a material upswing and then it, it, we see a, a further deterioration, and that is an entirely plausible and perhaps even likely outcome. So, as we've said about markets, as with economies, um, we're towards the end of the cycle. The only question is how close we are to the end, and of course, we'll only ever know um, after the event. I guess you know the three to six month view is somewhere between comfortable and, and, you know, maybe positive. But beyond then, you know, storm clouds loom. Okay, well, let me come back to you, Peter, then, because um, the high yield market is often called the canary in the coal mine. Um, You're at the coal face. Are you seeing any worrying signals there? Only just a few at the moment, but none of them seem to have really developed into a proper contagion mechanism to infect the rest of the the capital markets. So, you know, certainly we've seen the risk-adjusted underperformance of triple C credits, which are the most highly levered balance sheets that uh, we can own in in high yield. Uh, Investors are unwilling to dip down into that low quality sector because it tends to be very highly levered to to growth and or uh, the uh, opportunity to to refinance. So if either one of those two uh, pillars of uh, performance is eroded from here, we would expect triple C's to to get hit first and investors' reluctance to basically buy everything in a dash for trash kind of style uh, in, in so far in, in 2019 is a little bit of a warning sign. The other one uh, in emerging markets, clearly we have some ongoing rolling crisis in both uh, Argentina and Turkey, but it seems to have been contained within those two jurisdictions for now, could spill over at uh, some point, but really requires additional external catalysts to do so. 
So it sounds more like a watching brief um, for now. Uh, well, another area of the market which um, certainly knows when fear is growing because it's seen by investors as a defensive sector is healthcare. Uh, but it's been in the headlines of late not for being a haven, a safe haven, but because of its terrible performance. Year to date, the sector is down 11% compared to um, global indices. Well, earlier today, I caught up with some of Fidelity's healthcare team over a coffee to find out what's been bringing the sector down and how some rigorous research has helped them dodge the fall. Alex, you're the portfolio manager with a focus on um, on healthcare, and um, it's been a pretty uh, difficult year to date. Um, what, what's going on? Yes, so no, it has been quite tricky. So the healthcare sector is down about 11% year to date to the end of April, and this really accelerated in the last month. I think the main drivers behind that have been some of the political noise and rhetoric coming out of the US, in particular as we approach you know, I guess a year and a half away, the 2020 elections in November, investors are getting increasingly concerned about the opportunities for reform, both from a healthcare perspective generally, but also drug prices and insurance as well. So a lot of political pressure coming to bear. I mean, it really is uh, a sector that's ripe for this sort of change in the States, isn't it? Yes, I think the statistics now is about 17 to 18% of GDP in the US spent on healthcare, so it's always a very topical you know, theme. How, how does that compare to other countries? So other countries, it's um, what's below 10% in the majority of countries, in the rest of Western Europe, for example. So these companies are looking rather scared now? I think what the point that's interesting is that the pharma and the managed care, which is the US health insurers in particular, there's increased risk of... Um, either government intervention on the pricing or disintermediation on the insurance side of things. Um, so those companies are more exposed, whereas some of the others in um, medical technology or life science tools companies uh, ha- have less um, exposure. Okay, well, I've got um, Bruce and Sam here, uh, who are the analysts who were looking um, at this sector and spotted these concerns. Bruce, um, let me come to you first of all. H- how did you come to make that call? Yeah, so I mean, I've covered the managed care sector, among other stocks, for three years, and that involved living through the, the 2016 election, where uh, these managed care stocks were, were big winners from the Republican win, and the, the stocks performed very strongly out of that. The whole period since then, the, the issue has been we know that it could be risky end of the next election it's an issue more of timing so when when do you start to question these companies that have very strong fundamentals in a status quo versus the fact that the status quo could go away and actually there's no there's no business for them and it's as catastrophic as that in terms of their business model i mean they do other things but basically yeah they they manage the insurance coverage of a um, of the populations through the commercial insurance and where it's outsourced on the the government side if the government does it all like a like the nhs then there's no role for for these businesses and then the debate for Alex and others investing in this is how far in that spectrum do you go because there is another uh, scenario where actually they can do more to help but yeah it's 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 life and death and Sam what's your view on this on this particular aspect so without the benefit of uh, covering these stocks on the last election it was important for me to understand how they traded in previous elections so my analysis really focused on how managed care traded in the last five elections And it revealed to me, firstly, the risk is certainly there around healthcare policy reform. It's what's driven drawdowns in the past, and the Hillary tweet is a great example of where sentiment can erode. And then secondly... Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's um, tweet. And and a tweet, what happened? So 2015, September, uh, Hillary Clinton came out 
with an incendiary tweet essentially on, uh, on, on high drug pricing. And even though managed care was not directly related, of course it was affected trading down 20% before the end of the year. So we see that kind of sentiment uh, affecting managed care in the past. We also don't really see the reward that you would expect a rebound going into the election because the sentiment can overhang can persist right through the election. And if you do look at history, you can also see the healthcare form reform in the US tends to be a, a story of incrementalism rather than complete transformation. So for that reason, I came out slightly less extreme than Bruce did on ultimately Medicare for all materialising, but still very cautionary on uh, political rhetoric affecting the sentiment and multiples of the managed care sector. Absolutely. And incendiary or inspiring, depending on whether you're a pharma company or not. I Correct. Suppose. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And Alex, so how, how did this um, play out then in, in your portfolio as you were hearing this advice from the, from the analysts? Yes, yeah, so the managed care sector is about 10% of the, inde- the global healthcare index, which I invest in, so it's highly material. And although I only had a smaller overweight um, in that subsector. Bruce's early thoughts and caution was very important because it focused my mind um, on the issue as early as February and March rather than you know, waiting perhaps until later on this year. And that led me to adjust my positions downwards and actually I you know, have no no exposure at the moment. I'm, I'm equal weight that subsector. In managed care? Yes, I'm equal weight the subsector with no direct exposure. So where's that money gone instead? Where are the opportunities? Um, so for me, you know, healthcare is a very diverse sector and it's about much more than just pharma and health insurers and biotech. We have lots of um, good medical technology companies which make a lot of the equipment, you know, hips and knees, hearing aids, for example. And those sort of companies, which is what 40% of the fund is invested in, um, have, in my opinion, stronger fundamentals and much less pricing risk because they're only 6% of total government spend compared to pharma is you know, 12% and, you know, managed care in a much greater proportion from then. Okay, well Alex, Bruce, Sam, thank you all very much indeed. Well Anna, um, we could hear there what a big influence politics can be on the performance of a sector. Is that becoming more of a, a theme for markets generally? Uh, I would say it has been already for a few years, pretty much uh, since before the 2016 elections. Uh, and of course, uh, since the whole Brexit um, referendum, uh, it has been a you, bit You've said quiet. it, you've mentioned the B word. <laughs> Well, you did ask about politics. Yes. <laughs> it has been a little bit quieter, particularly with the Brexit timeline being um, pushed now to uh, towards the end of this year. Uh, but of course, it hasn't gone away. So we have uh, Brexit coming up, we have the European elections in a couple of weeks here, and then we'll be watching what, what happens afterwards with, with European Commission leadership, etc. Um, and then we have the US elections coming up, and uh, certainly Trump uh, is already campaigning with, with, the, with the trade war um, tensions escalating, um, and that will, uh, and that's something that will matter for the markets. Of course, there's a lot of noise in politics, so as always, it, it's very important to distinguish uh, signal and what actually uh, matters for fundamentals, just from noise that moves markets and affects headlines. Peter, from the fixed income bunker, what is keeping you awake at night on, on the political front? Well, uh, aside from the uh, regional and uh, seasonal issues that uh, that Anna's mentioned here, it really is down to that uh, relationship between the uh, the two global superpowers and whether or not we are just in uh, sort of late rounds, uh, late hands of a of a poker match, or whether there is something a little bit more 
structural going on there in terms of the schism between China and the U.S. Uh, and the outcomes for the leaders of both of those uh, systems at the moment may actually be better in terms of their own ability to play to their base and reinforce their own power by continuing to escalate as opposed to reaching uh, an agreement quite uh, quite quickly. And you know, clearly market disappointment around that over the course of the last week uh, is manifesting itself, uh, yet markets still want to believe that over the course of the next four to eight weeks, uh, it'll all be okay and we'll have a resolution and we're not uh, in the midst of a massive geopolitical inflection. Uh, and I think that that's just a little bit uh, too underpriced at the moment. And just to confirm that your glass is now empty, uh, not even half empty. Well, we're now coming to the end of this podcast, which means it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Let me start with you again, Anna. Um, in, in the currency world, I like the Swiss franc, uh, good safe haven, perhaps against the basket of both the dollar and the euro uh, to play uh, the, the euro weakness potentially. Um, but th- th- this is a decent currency like the uh, Japanese yen, which I preferred last time. And by the way, it has done quite well. Ah, good. <laughs> we, actually, we should follow up, shouldn't we, at the end of these? What about your hot potato? What would you um, drop? Developed market duration, we we have discussed it, and I think the yields are really so low now, um, they're not supported by fundamentals. Okay, James, hot cake. Um, hot cake, Richard, is anything that's, that's alternative, and I've said that before, but anything that doesn't have a traditional market exposure, so anything that's cash plus, and, and you know, that could be could be um, timber. What's the most exotic you would go for? Timber sounds... T- timber. I mean, not exotic, but it depends uh, what wood. I mean, um, you know, <laughs> typically, um, you know, wind farm or, or solar leasing, something like that. I think that's a, a nice area to be at the moment. Or just, you know, a conventional long short strategy. But something without direction, because I don't think now's the time to have a directional position on in any real asset class. And what would you drop? I think I'd drop, and I was, I was pondering this one a lot, um, US equities, and particularly growth or momentum, whatever you want to call it, but, but, but you know, tech particularly, but, but US in general. And I think that is that the market is, uh, much as Peter alluded to, probably pricing in a six to eight week resolution to the trade war with China. And, you know, six to eight months is perhaps more likely, maybe longer. But therefore, I think the idea that, that, that the US won't at least get derailed partly from that is, is, is perhaps naive. And actually, there is a scenario in which it, it, it causes an, a sort of global re-rating and rotation away from the US that could be quite significant. So that's my hot potato. Mm, OK. And um, Peter, final thought with you. Your hot cake, what would you buy? Yeah, a hot cake would be uh, generically anything that represents the kind of risk that we we can buy in fixed income markets. It looks an awful lot like what James has just advertised as his hot cake. So looking for stuff with strong asset cover, strong security package. We've seen quite a lot of very interesting new issuance in the high yield market uh, year to date uh, that has transitioned out of the loan market and has thus been looking to uh, express itself in a different way from companies that are distressed within the high yield markets. But in exchange for that, they need to offer up some additional security, some better asset cover, something that we can sleep more comfortably at night with holding through the next downturn cycle because we expect that uh, recoveries won't be impaired uh, in those securities. So for the moment, that's my sort of generic uh, hot cake. And your potato, hot Uh, potato? The hot potato, I think uh, I agree again with what James has said on the tech side, but that's not necessarily reflected in in valuations. Valuations are pretty balanced in in technology credits, but in telecom credits, uh, particularly in U.S. investment grade 
telecom. Uh, that sector is trading pretty much at the tights. It's difficult to see how much additional spread compression you might get there. Or put another way, the margin for safety uh, in in those asset valuations is very limited at the moment. Uh, so I think that uh, they could be considered a source of funds to buy something a little bit more secure. Jolly good. Well, that's it. Um, I hope that's given you an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. So thank you very much indeed to my guests. Uh, First, here in the studio, Anna, Peter and James, as well as Ian, Alex, Bruce and Sam in our refectory. And thank you very much indeed for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.